where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Our Week in Review is a special focus on the public inquiry into the invoking of the War Measures Act during the convoy protest in Ottawa. Last week was full of testimonies from convoy organizers talking about why they decided to get involved and what they saw during their time in Ottawa. Watching these videos, I have to be honest, has been pretty emotional for me. I spent some time in Ottawa. I was there a number of days, including that final day on Saturday when the government goons stepped in and shut the whole thing down. And it's been a little bit upsetting watching these videos and these interviews, considering how it is that regular Canadians were treated by our elite ruling class in Canada. But we will bring you the review and we will bring you all of the information. The TDSB, the Toronto District School Board, introduces a census for its students, a woke questionnaire designed to both indoctrinate children and give the school board the tools needed to stamp out racism and privilege. That's what they would say. What we would say is that the TDSB wants to enshrine godless neo-Marxist ideologies in schools. And finally, Bill C-11, an act to amend the Broadcasting Act and to make related consequential amendments to other acts, or its true hideous face, the Internet Censorship Bill, has passed through the House of Commons and has passed second reading in the Senate, making it only two steps away from becoming law in Canada. But don't worry, we shouldn't be concerned with our federal government giving a bureaucratic, unelected body increased power and discretion to affect the everyday lives of Canadians with regards to free speech and expression. I'm sure it'll all be just fine. It's November 8th. I'm Andrew DiBartolo. That's Matt Halleck. And this is the Liberty Dispatch. Hey there, and welcome to the Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture war. We're so thankful that you have joined us yet again on the Dispatch. We are so thankful for your audience, and we would just ask, wherever you're getting us from, that you would interact with our content over there. And obviously, be sure to subscribe like, rate, review, hit the notification bell wherever you are so you can keep up to date with the content that we are bringing you on a weekly basis. All our content is also over on the FLF Network, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. That's flfnetwork.com. And you can also get that, that content as well as the many other wonderful podcasts on that podcast network at the web... at at the app, which you can download from the Google Play or Apple App Store, and we would encourage you to do that to get our content on demand. Also, go over to our website. All Things Liberty Coalition Canada is found at libertycoalitioncanada.com. While you're there, 
scroll down to the bottom if you have not done it yet sign up for our email list you can stay up to date with what what we have going on at lcc and also if you would we would very much appreciate either a one-time donation or a reoccurring donation from you our faithful listeners uh because we're trying to continue to build this institution we have so many plans to keep building and we have some wonderful exclusive content that we're going to be able to bring you uh that we're really excited to to share with you guys all so definitely want to go over there leave a donation for us to help us continue to push back against government tyranny in canada and the legacy media propaganda and finally reach out to us at info at liberty coalition canada.com with any comments questions or concerns our weekend review is brought to you by our friends over at resistance coffee and watching all of the videos and footage from the public inquiry has reminded me that fighting for freedoms and liberties in Canada can be rather wearying. What we all need is some deliciously brewed fuel for our bodies and minds. That's why you need your beans from Resistance Coffee. Why would you buy coffee from people who hate freedom and the foundations of what make Canada a great country? Starbucks pays their employees to travel out of state to murder their babies. McDonald's wouldn't let unjabbed parents visit their sick kids in those Ronald McDonald clown hospitals. Tim Hortons wouldn't let unboosted people attend their woke camps. Spend your money on coffee that tastes way better than these Marxist companies and supports freedom in Canada. Go to resistancecoffee.com LCC and make sure you use that slash LCC to get 10% off of your purchase. That's coffee, mugs, apparel, the whole deal. That's resistancecoffee.com slash LCC. And Andrew, as we like to do at the beginning of each week, we like to highlight the stories from the past week in our segment called The Week in Review. Let's cue it up. Andrew, we wanted to we've as the the inquiry into the invocation of the Emergency Act has been unfolding. We've been giving snippets, bits and pieces, little recaps here and there of what's going on in the inquiry. But we wanted to dedicate the full week in review to what took place last week, because last week we got to see convoy protesters, participants and leaders give their testimony before the commission. So I think it's really interesting to do a postmortem on what took place and the impact thereof. So let us begin by taking a look at day one from last week, which is day 13 overall. And what we saw during day 13 is the Fed's were planning on pushing a narrative surrounding the entire Freedom Convoy, which we, on our various programs throughout January, February, were pointing out that this narrative was building even before the convoy entered, entered Ottawa. Legacy Media was working in conjunction with our federal government to push this narrative out. And we we got confirmation of that fact 
by what took place on the commission on day 13. Text messages between public safety minister Marco Mendocino and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's office revealed a plan to get in on the growing narrative that the Freedom Convoy truckers were quote-unquote extreme. I think there could be an opportunity to get in on this growing narrative of the truckers, wrote Mary Liz Power of Justin Trudeau's office to Mendocino's office. My thoughts of the framing here would be similar to what the what the PM, that's Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister, and Blair, so that's uh, Bill Blair, said last year when January 6th occurred. So there you see the jamming, right? Trucker convoy, January 6th uprising. They're one and the same. And that's the narrative that the legacy media was working in conjunction with the government to put forward. Continuing, Alexander Cohen of Marco Mendocino's office said he was supportive but wanted to wait because, quote, there's a danger that if we come down too hard, they must they might push out all the crazies. That's me and you, by the way, Matt. We're the crazies. <laughs> and the people from my church, my friends who wouldn't bow the knee to godless, tyrannical mandates and who went to Ottawa bringing bringing food and deodorant and soap and supplies for the organizers and were there, were the crazies and, <laughs> and our elite ruling class, they're the ones that we should leave in charge of things. But but, but uh, I wonder but I wonder I wonder, Andrew, if if they're you know, I think they would conflate all those groups. But I think specifically in this context, they're probably talking about the most extreme of the fringe, right? Because in any movement, you can engage in what's called nut picking, where you take the furthest outlier on one extreme and say, this outlier is indicative of every single person who took part in this, this movement, which is literally what the narrative was that was being spun was all about, right? They were trying to conflate this with January 6th. Uh, if that didn't work, then they were going to say, well, it's a white supremacist, a racist movement. And that is the narrative that they pushed out the whole time. And you have literal evidence here between media sor sources and government staffers working in conjunction with one another to make sure that they don't push out the crazies too soon because they want to engage in nut picking. That is collusion, unlike, you, you can't even make this stuff up. Yet this is here, we called it, and now it's out in the open. So it's really important for us to understand. Let's continue with, with what took place on day 13, the first day from last week. Former Ottawa police chief, Peter Slowly, testified that he feared that OPS would use violence or deadly force against protesters if they were put in a situation where they were overwhelmed. Sometimes serious injury or death is not the death or injury to the officer, Slowly said. It that an officer being swarmed and overwhelmed physically may need to resort 
to serious injury or death to prevent themselves from being overwhelmed. It's a two-way issue. Not fear that the officer is going to be hurt, slowly continued, but the that the officer may hurt or take the life of someone who is trying to overwhelm them. Slowly cited assaultive extrajudicial term assaultive behavior and said the convoy situation was a tinderbox of course there were no actual instances slowly could point to and no evidence that those dangerous claims were true of the convoy at least which we already saw their violence oh what violence oh i didn't see any (laughs) Wait a minute! You did violence. Yeah, we threw we threw eggs at them. Oh, there was <laughs> yeah. there was there, there was there was a there people the auto citizens of Ottawa being terrorized. Really? Mm. Like, did you know an example of it? No, I heard about it. Oh, <laughs> and the masks the masks were being torn off their faces. Really? Did you see it? No, I I heard about it. Oh, and oh. so what's amazing is in, here in you the have courts the that's called hearsay. Yeah, the former chief of police. <laughs> you have current government employees previous government employees, mm-hmm. a person who was running for mayor, and then someone else on city council, and all of them, they're all in the same bucket. And that same bucket is, oh, no, we're going to throw these things out, hope that it sticks, hope that no one's going to push us on it. And then when they do push us on it, our response is, well, I actually didn't see or hear it myself, and I haven't even been presented with evidence of it. It's just what I heard someone say. And that someone was either some sort of leftist or the legacy media, but that's really the same thing anyway. So it doesn't matter. It's amazing to me that uh, you can throw things out like that. Tinderbox, assault of behavior, like what? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Nevertheless, you can. So we get to uh, day 14, which is the next day. And day 14, we begin to have the testimonies of convoy organizers and planners. And so uh, notable on day 14 was Chris Barber and Bridget Belton. These are two truck drivers who are cross-border truck drivers. So they're going from the United States into Canada. So Chris Barber, who's a truck driver out of Saskatchewan, says he was deeply concerned about the January 15 mandates on truckers coming over the border because of quarantining requirements and how that was going to ruin their businesses. He had this to say during the commission i trucked throughout the whole pandemic i I never stopped i i was i was uh i was eating in my truck i had a coffee pot a coffee maker in my truck the restaurants were closed gas stations were closed bathrooms were closed it was really tricky i remember about two weeks into the pandemic thinking this isn't worth it and going home and then uh, the customer demands kept climbing so i ended up i stayed did you yourself get vaccinated yes sir why did you make that decision? Uh, I've spent the better part of 16 years running my company, keeping the big carriers away from my customer base, and I was at risk of losing all that hard work to not being able to cross the border anymore. Barber would continue to say that the aim of the convoy was to end the COVID mandates, right? Not to siege Ottawa, not to disrupt life, not to be an occupation, but really to bring these mandates to an end, pure and simple. Barber testified that the level of participation in the Freedom Convoy was, quote, beyond his wildest dreams, end quote. Barber said that his response, his personal response, was emotional, it's the word that he used, and that participation 
and people waiting for trucks to arrive in different cities was deeply impactful. Like I said earlier, we also had testimony from Bridget Belton, another cross-border truck driver. She said that on November 16, 2021, she was driving into Canada through the Windsor Crossing, where she describes a, quote, very unpleasant interaction, close quote, with a border officer. She said she was, quote, locked in that compound and not allowed to leave, end quote. She believed she was going to be arrested that day. She also said that given her legitimate medical condition, she could neither wear masks nor comply with other COVID mandates. And there's this interesting clip. We don't have it here. But if you go back, she actually starts giving it to one of the lawyers for the government of the city and basically says, you have no empathy. You're an evil person. Because of my conditions, I cannot wear a mask. How dare you? force me to do that much to my detriment. It's actually pretty good. She gives it to him. Good. Um, she, uh, they, they played a video of Belton during her testimony that she posted on social media where she said, quote, here in Canada, we're no longer free. This isn't what my grandparents came for being harassed at the border for wearing masks. And the highlight of day 14, or really to kind of bring this all together is here you have the people that, by the way, everyone in our elected government praised for the first year and a half of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The truck drivers are our heroes. They're our heroes. They're out there tirelessly driving 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, distributing hours a day. the goods right. that we need to the essential workers, the essential we workers that they need these truckers. They're because underneath of shortages, it all. Yeah. because of the issues of having they, they are our mm -hmm. heroes. They are bringing us what we need to live much the same way doctors and nurses and frontline workers were also touted as heroes until mm -hmm. what? Until they were now racist, misogynistic conspiracy theorists and a fringe minority. If they didn't promote they the government the vaccine. <laughs> and they didn't get yeah. the jab. And so yeah. Barbara said, I drove through the first 18 months of the pandemic. It wasn't a problem. But now all of a sudden I'm being told, uh-oh, you need the jab? And so that's that, that was particularly egregious that these people were heroes a year and a half ago, but now the government wants to paint them as villains. Absolutely, man. Well, let us go to day 15. And day 15 was a day where one of the most contentious uh, and perhaps bombastic characters involved. It's a good word. Bombastic is a good word. Matt, uh, it, Matt went it, off script. That was that was on the money. Bombastic <laughs> was the right word. I should have put that in the script. Well, I'm I, I, I'm appreciative that you liked uh, my my use of, of the word. Um, anyways, what I wanted to get at is Pat King, who's a contentious figure. He was testifying before the committee and was questioned by Ottawa lawyer Paul Champ and we want to play that for you now. Now Mr. King you obviously could not and did not know everyone who was in Ottawa during that protest right? <laughs> no there was millions of people. Well thousands anyway for sure. Hundreds of thousands. Let's not undersell it. There was a lot of people here. Uh, I'll just this, we'll agree to disagree there weren't hundreds of thousands but right. um you, uh, it was a bit of a dangerous situation with all those people downtown. Would you agree? Dangerous in what way? Well, dangerous. You don't know what people might have in their trucks. You don't know what they might do. They're very upset. They're very angry. Uh, was that a dangerous situation for downtown? Not at all. Okay. I met the most well, loving, it, most caring, most loving people 
Canadian citizens. Everywhere you went, you were getting hugs, you were getting handshakes, and well, then why nobody did you, was violent. Why did you need security then yourself? It was so dangerous that you yourself needed security. Isn't that right? Because the liberal left trolls were threatening my life. Okay, so that was dangerous, right? For me. Just for you. You're the only person in downtown Ottawa who's at risk. Is that right? Actually, I was um, the, the most highly protected person in Ottawa because we had, I think they had delegated eight police officers to follow me around everywhere. So, Mr. King, we've heard evidence that uh, many federal uh, elected officials, the mayor of Ottawa, had received uh, death threats. Uh, we've heard evidence that uh, uh, someone was actually arrested with, with uh, uh, firearms uh, who was coming to Ottawa, uh, who had been making threats about Do you have Mayor a record Watson, of that? Do you have a... Who had been, I, I'm asking the questions, Mr. King. Sorry. So, um, but you would agree with me that it was probably a dangerous situation for elected officials in Ottawa? It was a dangerous place for us. People were dropping marbles from high rises they were throwing eggs. Citizens of Ottawa were threatening to Mr. run us Mr. over. King, you yourself said that someone uh, who was maybe stressed out because of lockdowns and so forth uh, might be compelled to to shoot Mr. Trudeau. So you understood and recognized convoy. that that was a risk, right? That, that was months before the convoy. Also, but everyone was all, uh, they were all settled down by the time the convoy came and there was no threats to anyone. I've never seen anything more loving and peaceful in my life. Right. It was Woodstock. So the only person who's at risk in Ottawa was Pat King. All the other threats to anyone else in Ottawa were all fake. Is that right? I don't know. I can't speak on those. You know, my lawyer has been given death threats and bomb scares because she represents me. Do you know that my friends have been, their children have been threatened because of, from Ottawa? Do you know that? And I hate to say this, but this town is full of a bunch of people who really don't like people who speak out. I, I, don't, I disagree, uh, Mr. King. Ottawa has uh, dozens of large protests, many much larger than the one that you organized every single year. So, Andrew, there you have it. There's the interaction between Paul Champ and Pat King. Uh, Tom Marazzo, a friend of the show, somebody who's been on uh, open mic with Mike Thiessen. He's been on our program. We've had the pleasure of talking to him because he ran for the Ontario party in the last provincial election. Um, a very good man, uh, someone who was uh, highly involved in the uh, the trucker convoy. And he was involved in a lot of uh, logistics. He actually I watched his full testimony as well. He's even cited uh, Pat King as a guy who was a bit of a loose cannon. He even said he needed to put reins on Pat just because of the character that he he is. But, uh, I mean, Tom has spoke to us directly about how he was deeply impacted by the 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 vax and ma uh, mass mandates. Um the vax mandates especially because it led to him losing his job at Georgian College in September of 2021 due to the mandates. Uh, he himself is a military veteran, and he said this about the truckers and the trucker convoy. It gave me an opportunity to fight for my kids' rights because he saw what was coming down uh, the, the pike here. 
Morasso was asked if he saw himself as a spokesperson for the convoy. He said it was not until February 18 and 19 when every representative of the convoy had either, either left the city or been arrested that Morazzo himself kind of took the reins, took charge of the situation. Morazzo was showing... Uh, at a, vi at a press conference he hosted where he wanted to sit at a table with anybody in government who would listen to them. He reached out to NDP, conservative, block MPs, but no one ever wanted to have a conversation with us. And that was the general tact that our government officials, who should be representatives of the people, took towards this organic protest from the people of Canada. And, you know, there's been a lot of controversy over the language that Tom used as calling a, 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 that meeting a coalition. He was essentially just trying to say he wanted to sit down and, and interact, have a dialogue with uh, government officials. Um, and the, the sad reality, Andrew, is to this day, no one has spoken to the convoy or its rep representatives in any official capacity from from our government. And that's the, the, the insanity of all this is they wanted to come to Ottawa for a mission to get the ear of government. But the government from even before they arrived in the city was trying to spin a narrative to paint them as unreasonable people that you cannot talk to. They were there to overthrow the government, which was never a serious contention. Um, and that was then used as the predicate to say, well, we won't meet with you. So they shut meeting. their ears before they ever got there. And the not meeting with them highlights something that we've seen in this inquiry, which mm -hmm. is the utter disdain our elite ruling class has for us regular mm -hmm. Canadians. It's not just like a, oh, we'll tolerate them. It's a disdain. It's the fact that we value a distinctly Canadian identity. The fact that we understand that Canada ultimately is built upon biblical foundations, whether we recognize it or not, we understand that the things that make Canada great are those biblical truths. We value individual freedom and responsibility. And we refuse to give into this godless leftist agenda. They hate us for it. They mm -hmm. hate us because we're different, because we're not one of them. And even that interaction that we just played between the lawyer, uh, Paul Champ and Pat King, you know, one of the things that we want to do with this show is we don't just want to inform you. We also want to help educate and we want to help you understand how to cut through things that you see in the narrative and make sense of what's going on. Because you look at that interaction between Paul Champ and Pat King, and you think, oh, maybe they're kind of missing each other. They're not agreeing on the details. But we want to help you understand what's actually going on there. Paul Champ basically makes a nonsensical argument, and he refutes his own position and makes it so that he's standing on nothing but sand. What do I mean by that? He starts off by saying there were only thousands of people in Ottawa. So there was no one there. It's not a big deal. Now, this might be anecdotal, but as I said earlier, I was in Ottawa. And at any given moment, you might not have had millions of people there, right? I don't know if that was Pat, if that's what Pat King meant. 
But over the course of the three weeks, with the number of people that would come in and out from various cities, there were people all the way from Alberta who were there, that they drove all the way from Alberta just to be there and come back. I would say easily you had over 1 million non-Ottawa citizens who were there over the course of the whole time. But at any given moment, yeah, there were days I were there, there were hundreds of thousands of people, that there were tens of thousands of people just in one kind of block area. So, but he's downplaying it, the lawyer. Oh, it's only thousands of people, not a big deal. Okay. So if there's only thousands of people and it's not a big deal, then why is he laboring the, it was dangerous. You don't know what's going to happen. Danger, danger, danger. And Pat King says, no, it's not really dangerous, right? Like it was, it was, it was, it was loving. It was, it was fun. And then the, the, the lawyer says, well, you know, Ottawa's had all these other protests that were way bigger than the one you had. This was a nothing protest, but danger, danger, danger. It's a nothing burger. No one was there, barely anyone in Ottawa, but super de duper dangerous. And you don't know what's going to happen and who knows what they have hiding in their trucks and all these other protests that are the dozens of protests each year that are much bigger than the little scrawny convoy protest. None of them, we had no concerns for what people would do and danger. No, no, no. But this one, this little tiny insignificant, not a big deal, but be very afraid of the protest. That's the argument he was making. And so the response to it is your, your argument is a non-argument. You're refuting your own position. And I would offer that the opposition to the convoy is that if it really is a fringe minority with unacceptable views, then what is there to be afraid of? What's the concern? Why bring in police officers from all over the country to function as jackboots to push them off of Wellington? But if it is a real big deal, but they would refuse to give that up. And so they, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth to try to make a point. And the mm -hmm. point is they have no point. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So Andrew, day 16 of the convoy was a very emotional day because in in that day we got to hear from Tamara Leach who took really front and center stage as one of the main organizers of the Freedom Convoy and she took the stand for the first time since her bail bail hearing in late July and we know we've we've talked about it on the program, Tamara has been one of the the most persecuted people who took part in the Freedom Convoy. She's been locked up multiple different times concerning her relationship to the events that took place at the beginning of this year. Um, and it was just really powerful, Andrew, to see her testimony that she give gave uh, when Leach was asked about what her life had been like after her arrest in Ottawa on February 17th, she had this to say, I've lost my job. I've lost my freedoms of speech. I've lost my freedom to communicate with my friends. I have to be very careful about every move that I make. She continued my trials, not until next year. I have to live under these conditions for an entire year. Leach described her experience prior to her arrest. She was at her hotel when she found out that fellow organizer, Chris Barber, who we've mentioned before, had been arrested. 
This is what she said. I still believe that we did an excellent job remaining peaceful and advocating for respecting the police, she said. And we want to play just a snippet for you to, so you can get the weight of the testimony of her testimony. So that's what we want to cue up for you. Because I was seeing families torn apart. The suicides in my hometown were so numerous that they stopped reporting them. Um, elderly people were dying by themselves in long-term care facilities and saying goodbye over iPads. My grandma is 94 years old and she was locked in her little apartment by herself for two years. And now that she can go out and do things, she's not healthy enough. She lost two years of her life. My father is, I'm so sorry. Take your time. My father is a very social man. He is the Coffee Row Saskatchewan father. And I remember him telling me one day that he went down to the local restaurant that he went to every single day. And these are small towns where everybody knows everybody and he was asked to leave. And I didn't want my children and my grandchildren to live in a world like that. Andrew, there's the emotional testimony of Tamara. And, you know, she maintained throughout her testimony that far from being this horrible, no good, very bad group of insurrectionists, that the convoy was actually a love fest. And I've heard from you and Mike and various others who were participating in it, that that was actually the reality of the situation and not what the legacy media in conjunction with government officials were spinning up. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the, part of the intense emotions that people are, are feeling right now. There's a gentleman from my church. We were actually talking about this yesterday. He went to Ottawa for one of the days to sit in on the commission and recalling, recalling those three weeks in Ottawa was rather emotional, recalling it. And part of the intensity was here we were, and here were many Canadians. I mean, a lot of them you know, don't know and don't love Christ. And so for them, this is all they have. This is their hope. Their hope is that the convoy will end the mandates, and they're putting all that eggs in that bucket. There's a desperation that was there. And so Canadians were hopeful. They were desperate. For many of them, I talked to them, they hadn't been around other people maskless for a year and a half, that they were completely made other with their family and their friends. They were barred from going to church. They couldn't go anywhere without being forced to cover their faces. It was a lonely, isolated time. And so here we were, and a love fest is an accurate word because people that you didn't know that you met for the first time, you could hug and dance and shake hands. There was the coffee and the hot chocolate was flowing in the streets of Ottawa. It was food everywhere. The donations were so immense that there were tents set up around downtown Ottawa where they were giving away hats, gloves, hand warmers, because there was too much stuff. People were bringing whole pizzas to homeless people. It was, it was something else. And, you know, they did Tamara dirty. 
the way they arrested her and then the way that they arrested her again for violating her bail conditions was particularly egregious. We covered that on the show. Uh, I, I can understand her being emotional. It, it was emotional for us. And I think for many of us, it still continues to be emotional as we as we reflect on it. And the, Not, the, uh, the, the fact that the people who are most likely against what took place in Ottawa with the trucker convoy, that they style themselves as empathetic, tolerant yeah. individuals is just a farce. And this yep. has really exposed this. They are empathetic towards those who have the same ideological commitments as them and totally and utter dis- utterly disdainful mm-hmm. towards those who do not share their same world and life view. And this is so very evident because as it has come out over and over and over again, and all these testimonies really highlighted for us last week is it was a rather decentralized movement. It was an organically spontaneous movement that um, arose from the disquiet in Canada concerning the, the years of lockdowns, mandates and, and vax mandates and QR codes and all that's kind of gone on in COVID and the trampling of our charter rights and freedoms by federal officials and public health bureaucrats and provincial governments across our country, which CSIS confirmed, right? That the top experts confirm that this wasn't a foreign funded organization. This was primarily an organic um, organization of people springing up across the country that were as the chief of, you know, officials in law enforcement have recognized spanning various groups of different individuals. Um, it was not a monolithic group who was going to uh, create some sort of insurrection and overthrow the Canadian government. That was never a serious uh, thing. And the fact of the matter that so many people in Canada can't empathize with a large swath of people from all different backgrounds who are pushing back against the nonsense that took place from our governments across this nation for, you know, a year and a half, two years. That just goes to show you their character. And it goes to show you that they are not, despite labeling themselves tolerant, they are actually intoleristas, as Duck Wilson would would put it. Andrew, we have one more day to recap before we get into our first story. Day 17, former RCMP officer Daniel Bulford. I actually had the, the privilege of meeting him in the Swiss Hotel a number of the, the times that I was in Ottawa. He testified as a supporter of the convoy. Uh, he resigned from the RCMP in December of 2021 after opposing federal vaccine mandates and joined the Freedom Convoy as a key security advisor and later as a police liaison. For those that don't know, uh, Daniel Bulford was actually a part of the rather elite sniper squad that was tasked with protecting the prime minister at various speaking engagements. So this guy's the real deal, and he was high up in the RCMP. And he resigned because he wouldn't comply with lawless, unscientific, tyrannical mandates. This is what he said, quote, I spoke out publicly against the federal government vaccine mandate. He told the commission that pandemic restrictions prevented him from flying to see his family. 
We lost neighbors and friends, he added. Bulford said that he had seen Canada, quote, degenerate, and that he felt that he was not trust treated as an equal citizen, and that led to his resignation. Quote, prior to the convoy, I was ready to leave the country, end quote. He said, the, quote, dehumanization effort had begun, end quote, when Trudeau announced federal vaccine mandates. The Canadian population was led to believe that people who weren't vaccinated were a threat, he added. And we just want to play you a brief interaction from the commission with regard to Daniel Bulford. Well, I didn't get out of the Swiss hotel very much those first initial days. But when I finally did, it was the largest event I've ever observed in downtown Ottawa in my time here. And what about the con conduct of the participants? Well, it was a... Uh, I'd say it was a very festive atmosphere. People were very emotional. Hugs all over the place. It was incredible. There were, the crowd was humongous. And it was a very overwhelming emotional experience because I, I felt that there was a sense of hope that Canada wouldn't go to a very dark place. You also had testimony from Chris Deering. He was asked to take the stand. Deering, who said that he was wounded during his time in Afghanistan, said he came to Ottawa to protest because he felt it was his duty. And I recommend people watch his testimony. He talks about being in Afghanistan, an IED going off, and friends of his getting hit, suffering, dying, and even the injuries that he sustained. He sustained rather serious injuries while he was over serving Canada in Afghanistan, he says this, quote, seeing what was happening over the last few years was troubling, Deering said. For the last two years, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't grieve for my comrades in Nova Scotia because I wasn't allowed to cross the border in my own vehicle by myself to a cemetery. And so for those that don't know what he's talking about, there was a season of time where there were provincial checkpoints set up that you could not get into Eastern Canada. You would pass through Quebec and then there would be checkpoints set up that they wouldn't let you into the Maritimes if you didn't have proof of vaccination. And at some point, I think it was just in general. Sorry, can't come in here if you're not a citizen. We we lived through that in this country. Deering said he felt obliged to stay in Ottawa after the Emergencies Act was invoked to help people. Deering said he spoke to a few officers and told him why he was there. He asked them to be careful with his bad back if they arrest him. However, when asked to describe his arrest, Deering said that police kneed him and punched him in the head multiple times before having his hands zip tied. The videos are available. They, they, they show the clip during his testimony. There he is, hands up, saying, you know, please don't, you know, don't arrest me. But if you do, you know, be careful. I hurt him. I have a really bad back. And then you see the videos of him being pulled down being kneed multiple times in the back, being punched and being zip tied. And what's particularly disgusting about the, the lawyer from the city or the government or whatever, who's interviewing him saying, Oh, you refuse arrest. He's like, no, I didn't refuse arrest. They pulled me down to the ground. Oh, but when they pulled you down to the ground, you refuse arrest. You'd like, no, I was on my knees because they were kneeing me in the back. Oh, but then you refuse to be arrested. No, because then they were punching me in the face. It's just this, like he's trying, the lawyer is trying to, trying to paint 
this veteran who injured himself while serving our country as being someone resisting arrest and warranting getting need in the back is mm -hmm. gross. Anyways, and the I, final I, quote from Deering is, and I think this is good for us to, to say, mm -hmm. he says it was the worst pain I'd felt since I'd been blown up, Deering said. They had no right to do what they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is all in the context, Andrew. We had those leaked emails or uh, text messages back and forth between a group of RCMP officers who were gloating and, and asking each other not to dispel the protests too soon before they could get into Ottawa to have their pound of flesh. That's the thing that took place. So it's amazing to me because I guarantee you these same lawyers who are questioning Deering in this way and suggesting that he brought this on himself, despite all evidence to the contrary, they would be the first to be defending the actions of men like George Floyd or anything like that, right? That yep. they would point to that being an instance of brutal, systemic police brutality in our in in america but when it comes to that actually being the case that's backed up by we literally have documented evidences of rcmp talking to each other about brutalizing canadian citizens there for the freedom convoy you deserved it well of you course deserved gonna, it if those rcmp officers were going to get paid double time and a half and plus a bonus yeah, yeah you bet they were going to look forward to getting paid to to beat up on people it's mm -hmm. disgusting absolutely. absolutely disgusting absolutely and i think that is what continues to come out if we can wrap up our weekend review uh, for the emergency act special that's what continues to come out in these interactions is it wasn't uh, there was no violence from the protesters. This wasn't an insurrection as the government and legacy media tried to gin it up as being even before the convoy arrived in the town. And th the fact of the matter is the violence only ever went one way, and that was government officials and law enforcement against the convoy and the protesters. And that's the reality of the situation. We keep saying it on the pr program. Light is a great disinfectant. Mm -hmm. And we are, regardless of what happens in these, because we, we understand this could be a rigged game. And it realistically, it might be. But what is coming out is irrefutable. It Better is exposed and hidden, right? Better to get it absolutely. out for everyone to see what actually went on. And the nice thing about this commission is yeah. even legacy media has to cover it, right? Yes, so even they yeah, have to exactly. show all this. Exactly. Even if it's not going well for them, but that wraps up the week in review. So our first story, which I know Matt is absolutely chomping at the bit. You can't see the stuff that he was saying before we started <laughs> recording, but I just saw the redness in his face. I, I almost, he almost kind of went super saiyan, like his hair started going blonde and there was this aura <laughs> around him. But before we get into that story and, and I take the, uh, I take the chain off of Matt and I unlock the gate. We want to talk about our friends over at bull Bitcoin. Born out of a desire to separate money from the state, Bitcoin epitomizes freedom money, an uncensorable network programmed around digital scarcity where the individual is in full control and accountable for his own property. Bull Bitcoin, Canada's most trusted Bitcoin exchange since 2013, 
is a 100% self-funded company led and operated by incorruptible activists for individual liberties and freedom. At Bull Bitcoin, security and privacy are priority. Customers' funds are transferred directly to their Bitcoin wallet in their own possession. With Bull Bitcoin, you never run the risk of losing your money because you own the money. Sign up at mission.bullbitcoin.com slash LCC and get started with your account's creation today. Contact Bull's best-in-business customer support team at any point to request assistance throughout the process. Take control of your money. Mission.bullbitcoin.com slash LCC. Well, Andrew, the first story we have today is a doozy. And it is concerning a recent census that came out from the Toronto District School Board. And this census had to be withdrawn due to its obscenely sexualized and race-obsessed nature. The controversial census 2022 that was released by the TDSB entitled Your Schools... Your stories, there's some relativism for you, um, some standpoint epistemology, has come under fire from concerned parents. Consequently, the TDSB had to withdraw the census and scrubbed it from their website pending further review from the school board. The student census has been in place, this type of census, since 2017 in Ontario, or in the TDSB anyways. It was initially introduced because of school board's trustees' concerns over the overrepresentation of Black, capitalized, so that's leftist um, in nature, and other historically marginalized student, students' um, overrepresentation in special ed. The census is given to kids from K to 12 for the purpose of collecting identity-based data. In the About This Document section of the census, the authors explicitly state their presuppositions when they write, this framework is rooted in anti-racist, anti-oppressive, anti-colonial and community-based participatory research methods. That's on page four of the census. That is to say, the census is based on a Marxist problematization of race, socioeconomic power dynamics, history, and it's all done from a collectivist, communistic point of view. That's that's getting reading between the lines, getting to the heart of the issue. The census is designed to quote, this is from them, dismantle all forms of colonial and settler colonial violence. The census is undertaken according to the authors in conjunction with the Ontario Human Rights Code, the OHRC, and the data standards for the identification and monitoring of systemic racism. I bet you, Ontarians, that you didn't know that that even existed, yet it's been in operation since 2016. As a side note, 
Did you also know that the OHRC, um, the the commission itself, the Human Rights Commission itself, has a secretariat of anti-racism? They've had one since 2006. In fact, did you know, additionally, that the TDSB is only the tip of the iceberg? It's only the tip of the spear because this is the reality of the situation. Since 2017, when the Provincial Anti-Racism Act was passed into law in Ontario, which established an Ibram X. Kendi-style anti-racism directorate, plans have been put in place to extend this type of census data mining to all school boards across the nation or across the, the the province i mean so this is actually backed up by provincial law so while critical race theorists have been in the you know the, the routine of gaslighting canadian citizens and saying that this stuff has not been in canadian schools it's still currently not in canadian schools what we actually know is the census has exposed the reality that it's so deeply embedded into um, schools and into law in Ontario that these censuses are now sensi. I don't know how you pluralize that. Anyway, censuses, 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 censuses. Censuses is that is that cultural appropriation? You can't say I that. Probably. Um, okay. they, they're written in, and mandated by law. So that's the crazy part, Andrew, is you guys in Ontario, you might have thought, oh, we have this human rights commission to protect our human rights and freedom. But realistically, the human rights commission has been given over to Marxist activists and they've used this to enshrine their Marxist praxis into law where they can find and potentially jail people for not going along with their Marxist agenda. And it's it's crazy that they use the OHRC as the predicate for doing all these things because it's necessary, right? We're bound by law. We're just doing what we're legally supposed to do as some sort of authoritative document. Because when I was looking at the OHRC, Andrew, as a non-Ontarian, I was struck by the amount of amendments. So we're talking about a human rights commission that is supposed to, you know, stand up for, you know, immutable human rights. But the thing the the OHRC has been amended 32 different times since March 8th of 2005 alone. So to say that this is an authoritative document that we have to align our values with is absolutely insane. And realistically, what we're seeing is since about 2005, 2006, Marxist activists have taken over the Commission of Human Rights in Ontario and have been steadily increasing their activism and the le- the binding of that activism on all Ontarians since that time. Andrew, as someone from Ontario, give your thoughts on the issue. It's crazy. We're going to document all this in in the descriptions below. But as someone who's not from the province, I was floored by just the radical nature of what's been taking place 
and for how long it's been taking place in in our biggest uh, province in, in Canada. Well, I think you've done a really good job at highlighting the information and the issue and what's really going on. And so my comments are going to be, okay, so now what? That's basically my comments. What do you do with this information? Mm-hmm. A couple things. We've said this before. This isn't going to upset anyone. I know that for sure. So uh, the first thing is this. I'm being sarcastic, by the way. So the first thing is this. This is why we need to see more and more Christians, people who don't support these godless ideologies, getting engaged in culture and politics. The idea that we can just sit back and, oh, everything will sort itself out. and we No, no, no. That's, um, that's nonsense. So this is why we need to continue to train and equip people who are going to run in elections, who are going to occupy positions where decisions are made, where things like these are sorted out. So, so keep doing that. So if you're, I'm not saying every Christian needs to run in politics. I'm not saying every Christian needs to be involved in the same level in cultural engagement. But what I am saying is every Christian needs to think about what their part might be. And there are some that need to take a more public measured stance in running, in advocating, in being involved, and not seeing these kinds of ideologies or legislation or practices or completely ridiculous questionnaires and censuses, census ICs put into place. So that's the first thing. We need gone are the days of, of, of the, the myth of neutrality has been shown to be a decaying corpse that that isn't actually what we thought it was. And the truth is that those who hate Christ and those on the left will continue to push their agenda and they don't believe in neutrality. They also have their own gods and their system and their presuppositions that they want to push. So we need to be involved and engaged. Which That's Andrew, for, which Andrew, to, it, it, that is a, that point is essential because Marxists that that's the one point we can agree with them on is they explicitly say there is no neutrality. Therefore, since there is no neutrality, we need a world and life view, aka Marxism, that can explain the oppression and the structures of racism and all these things in our society so they we need to be conscious we need to be woke to what's going on in our society and marxism and the critical lens that it gives us to view the world is the only way that we can do that so that is the the fact that they believe in the myth of neutrality is the predicate for them pushing their worldview and i would actually say yes they have it right at that point but that is essentially what we've been saying on the program forever. The alternative isn't Christ and some other good system. It's Christ and chaos, uh, which is just embodied in this insane neo-Marxist program. So that's the first point. The second mm-hmm. point is this. Um, get your kids out of government schools. There's no excuse anymore. Like, I, like there's no, that, that, that's it. There is no excuse. There is no way to justify it. Like, that's all there is. You can't say, oh, but still, they can, they can, they can receive this for eight hours a day, and then I'll come home, and for the thirty minutes that I have their attention before homework and games and soccer and karate and hockey and archery, I'll be able to deprogram, right? Or, or the the terrible Sunday school lesson on Sunday morning that uh, God's a God of second chances. That's why He spent Jonah out of the fish. If you think that that's going to be able to undo all of this, you're wrong. You're wrong get your kids out of government-funded indoctrination centers. Stat, immediately, now, last week, last year. 
you and you you need to there's, there's no mm-hmm. there is no option there is no oh yeah no it's 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 fine and okay and won't be detrimental if christians send their kids into these environments wrong false completely yeah. demonstrably not the case because because provincial law mandates that the census take place we'll go with every sensei. year i like that every year across the entire province now like that was a law that was passed in 2017 so that's the reality of the situation if you don't want your kids taking part in this data mining and that's essentially what this is they're data mining your children so they can put their finger on areas of problems so that's literally that's what um, the marxist paulo Freire, his method of education was problematizing certain areas of society to then use that as the predicate to indoctrinate um, those who are being educated into a Marxist conscientization. And that's just, that is like the fancy word of being woke. That's being awakened to this critical theory, critical mindset in all these different areas of life. So that's what the census is doing. It's trying to data mind your children so then they can psych psychologically manipulate them in order to create them into Marxist activists in initially in establishing a Maoist red guard in Canada. That is what, and that's how they're going to disrupt and dismantle colonial violence and oppression. That's how this all works together. I'm going to link for you, our dear listeners and viewers uh, an extensive series that James Lindsay at, at the New Discourses is doing on um, Marxist education, how Paulo Freire, who is a Brazilian educator, destroyed Brazil's education and, and got kicked out of the country. He was also um, a Catholic priest, a liberation theologian, the mentor of, yes, one Klaus Schwab, and yes, Pope Francis, the current Pope of the Catholic Church, he was a Marxist and he changed education into a Marxist program. There's an extensive series on it. It's very heady. It's very important for you to realize because I've been going through it. I've been reading some of these Marxists um, and and in their own words, I, I, in their own words, I've been tracking with Lindsay as he's going through this. And Andrew, we're covering the story, and I'm just like, this is literally everything that James has been talking about. This is Fieri, Frieri's program in place in Canadian schools and mandated by law. So, so could we say, could we say almost that those who are in high positions of legislating? and crafting and shaping educational systems in Canada, are you suggesting that maybe they are influenced in some way by some of the higher-ups in organizations like the WEF? Matt, are you saying that that there's a connection there? Absolutely. Some sort of... Uh, okay, so so I want to give people the connection you can make. Just go over to the W the We Forum website, right? Um, they push an educational program called Social and emotional learning. That's SEL. And the main group that is engaged in SEL is uh, CASEL. 
And they work in conjunction with the WEF to push social and emotional learning, which is literally performing psychology as untrained teachers on your kids. It's psychological manipulation. And the crazy part is that SEL has been used to basically propagandize individuals and where it's been actually implemented it's led to the absolute total destruction of educational programs because essentially what happens is you whip up people's emotions so bad that you that you stir their emotions and their conscience that they they don't want to learn all they want to do is become political activists and that's what these programs are designed to do so your kids attend Fieri school, Fieri schools. They were, they attend Marxist schools and those schools are now mandated by law in Ontario. So if you think what Andrew's saying is extreme, you have not understood the severity of the situation. You need to listen the the one good part about the COVID <laughs> lockdowns and kids having to learn from home is Parents woke up to what was actually being taught in schools. This program's been going on for a long time. Now that you're awake, you need to do something about it. And I would start by taking your children out of the belly of the beast. And then we can push back as taxpayers against this traitorous subversion of Canadian culture from a Marxist worldview. That's how we have to deal with this. And we have to do it now. So quick, quick recap, recap on my thoughts. Number one, engage in the culture, in the political sphere. Number two, pull your kids out of government schools. And number three, inform yourself, be informed, do your research. You know, like we, we, we covered a bill a number of months ago in Ontario it was a provincial bill, bill C-16, which was racial equality in the education system. And it barely made it past first reading. And then it was shut down. There's a lot of outcry and like, yay, celebration. Okay. Except for the fact that it's been reincarnated as Bill 67 in Ontario and it is passed second reading and it's been given to standing committee. So Bill 67, which is Bill, C Bill 16, which is the racial equality in the education system, the exact same thing, has now passed its second reading and it's well on its way to being enshrined and it's all this, all this stuff. All this Marxist, radical, racial ideology type stuff, which will be harmful. So you need to inform yourself and you need to understand what's going on. Do your research. We have links. We have places we can send you. Mm -hmm. um, we, should, uh, we should move on to our last story, which is another bit of legislation that is particularly troubling. But before we do, we need to tell you that our final story is brought to you by our friends over at Red Balloon. You might think that woke politics and medical tyranny have destroyed the Canadian workplace, but did you know that some companies are standing up and saying no? Over 2,000 companies have pledged to honor free speech and medical privacy at redballoon.work, and redballoon.work is here in Canada. Business owners, you can find top-tier values-aligned talent and get help building an uncancelable pro-freedom workplace. Job seekers. You can find courageous companies that share and protect your values. Go sign up today at redballoon.work slash LCC. Again, that's redballoon.work slash LCC. 
Our final story, as I mentioned earlier, is a troubling bit of legislation. This is Bill C-11, which is well on its way to becoming law in Canada. It has passed through the House and it is now in the Senate and it is working its way through the Senate and is really only two steps away before becoming law and receiving royal assent. Now, this comes to us from our friends over at the JCCF. They have been shining a light and sounding the alarm about Bill C-11 for a while. And so they have a great summary of the problems of the bill and the future concerns for Canadians everywhere, especially for those of us who are part of the fringe minority with unacceptable views. So this comes to us from the JCCF. Will Bill C-11, the online streaming act, empower the federal government to censor controversial and unpopular speech on the internet? Not immediately. But the Online Streaming Act, OSA, is a significant and dangerous first step toward governmental control of the internet. The stated purpose of the OSA is not particularly controversial, to bring influential streaming services like Netflix, Disney, and Spotify under the authority of the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC. JCCF continues, but under the OSA, the CRTC's new authority will not be limited to these large entertainment giants. Rather, the OSA will empower the CRTC to assume jurisdiction via regulation over any program, audio or audiovisual online content that is monetizable because it directly or indirectly generates revenues. The OSA would give the CRTC new powers to regulate virtually any online streaming service, also known as a platform. It would also regulate audio or audiovisual content accessible in Canada on such a platform. In the long run, the CRTC could end up regulating much of the content posted on major social media, even where the content is generated or uploaded by religious, political, and charitable nonprofits. They also reference to Michael Geist. He's a law professor of internet and e-commerce at the University of Ottawa. Probably one of the, the good people in Ottawa. He had this to say on the website, uh, sorry, on his website where he, he blogs about this. Bill C-18 will hand new power to the CRTC to oversee what are effectively mandatory payments by internet platforms such as Google and Facebook for the mere appearance of news on their platforms. This represents nothing less than a government-backed shakedown that runs the risk of undermining press independence, increasing reliance on big tech, and hurting competition and investment in Canadian media. I will have several posts in the coming days, including an analysis of the bill once it drops and a review of the lobbying campaign for the bill, which included over 100 registered lobbyist meetings by News Media Canada over the past three years and skewed coverage of the issue in which the overwhelming majority of news stories backed government intervention. And if the legacy media backs it up, we should reject it and be terrified of it because it's probably going to impinge on our freedoms even yeah, more. Absolutely. And so we have to understand that legacy media is working as a cartel to keep out uh, content and information 
like our program that would challenge its hegemony in society. And this is very commonplace is many, this is corporatism to a T many large ind industries with established, um, you know, institutions try and use government as a way to keep out any competition from outside people coming in. That's what unions do, right? They try and work hand in glove with governments to protect their labor cartel from scabs, right? That's what a, somebody who would come outside of the cartel to try and work in the industry. That, that's how they refer to them, right? They're less than human. They're scabs who are trying to break the cartel, but because cartels are essentially, they're not very stable because all you have to do is have somebody working outside the cartels, undercutting the cartels to then drive people to, to their services. And that's essentially what's happening in, in media. Media has been democratized. It's been decentralized. Most people don't consume it through legacy media. So what's a way for legacy media to get their filthy hands back on the, the strings of all the media that people are consuming in Canada? It's to work with government to pass bills like Bill C C11. This is absolutely going to change the nature of the government's relationship with media and the internet in Canada. And it's going to put all media, regardless of what the platform you're consuming it on under the purview, the regulatory capture of C the CRTC. And like you said at the start of the program, Andrew, I'm sure nothing will go bad with that, right? If our government, yeah, the, uh, the, the same government who was working in conjunction with the legacy media to spin the na narrative with over the Freedom Convoy, they can totally be trusted to be a trustworthy source of media uh, regulation and information um, for all platforms, regardless of how they're being distributed. Yeah, right. That is the crazy. Concern, the concern is when you start layering this legislation on top of, on uh, like one on top of the other. And what do I mean by that? Yeah. So these isolated bits of legislation are not, I mean, they might be problematic if they're implemented a certain way. But the concern is when you start putting this all together in an evil, disruptive jambalaya of pure marxist ideologies so the same way they did with the the anti-racist act that was passed in 2017 it's taken time now to to get to the position where they're now mandating that this all takes place in every school district across the province right but that's the concern that you're highlighting there andrew yeah so let's 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 put the soup together so you have the amendment to the criminal code that enshrines various hate speech laws. This is what Jordan Peterson, basically he cut his teeth on is a famous person. It's him speaking out against these laws saying you cannot criminalize speech. You cannot compel speech in Canada. So let's that boom. That's, that's ingredient. Number one ingredient. Number two, we could say would be bill C4, which says that if you propagate the myth that marriage and sexuality is to be a certain way, and you encourage someone to pursue that quote unquote myth, you could go to prison or be fined a rather large sum of money. So that's ingredient number two. And then we add to it Bill C-11, which is going to increase the CRTC's power in very vague, unclear ways. 
so now this is what happens online. So it's not just what a person says in private, but what they say when they post videos as they distribute their content. That's the third bit of the third ingredient. You start mixing this together. And what you what you see is that all of this legislation really lines up in opposition to only one side. So the people that would say we're going to parrot a climate alarmism, radical gender, sexual ideology, status, scientist, government tyranny kind of narrative, they don't have anything to worry about. None. They have no concerns at all. But for people who would say, well, actually, I, I support a, a biblical definition of marriage and sexuality and a biblical sexual ethic. I also believe that the state is limited in its power. I also believe that we cannot worship science health czars as being the ones to run our country, that we believe in individual freedoms and rights and responsibilities, that you can't legislate against speech. The people on that side of the argument, which are, it's me, that we're those people, we're the ones who now have various pieces of legislation being passed that are mounting a case against us as to why we should be silenced or we should be fined or we should be arrested. So it should be concerning for Canadians to see these things mount up against us, but not concerning to the point that we lose heart mm -hmm. because we know, as we've said before, that we are right on top of where we need to be in exposing lies, exposing what is true and actually speaking against these evil ideologies because they're freaking out because they are upset and they are rallying and they're trying to silence us because what we have is true and they're trying to squash us because what we have is real and right. And so we can't allow ourselves to bend to the power and the coercive threats of the state and the legislative weight it brings behind it. We need to say, no, this is true. This is right. We'll operate in these ways. We will continue to press against lies, against misinformation. It may come at a cost, that's fair, but the cost will be worth it because the battle for truth is always worth it. Mm -hmm. And we're not just fighting for ourselves, we're fighting for our children and for our grandchildren, like Tamara Leach said in that video clip, that this is not the kind of country that she wants to see her kids and grandkids grow up in. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're engaged in. We are engaged in a multi-generational culture war where we are trying to build something strong that will withstand the collapse of Western civilization so that our kids and grandkids can rebuild something that is good, true, and beautiful, and we get to be a part of it. So, dear listener, dear viewer, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in fighting the good fight for truth, in engaging in the culture, in the public square, in the political sphere, don't grow weary in trying to push back against lies and expose them, but continue to do what it is that we're doing here and join us in this uh, because there's work to be done. We're not discouraged. We don't lose heart. Uh, and ultimately, we know that at the end of the day, Christ not only reigns victorious now as king, but will have the victory through his church and through the expansion of his kingdom. So we have hope and we have strength. And we are not dissuaded by the evil and the lies that we see around us. Amen, brother. Well, please, dear listeners and viewers, engage with our content, share it. And also, if you would, please donate to our cause because 
there is way more money backing the Marxist takeover of Canada than there is er, going towards that than there is going to companies like ours, going to institutions like ours that are fighting against that and that are trying to declare the lordship of Christ over all of life and the amazing implications that has for the civil liberties, not just of Christians, but of all Canadian citizens. So we would really help or hope that you would help us, that you would join in this fight because you are as much as a part of our team if you're helping donate to us as we are. And regarding supporting us at Liberty Coalition Canada, we've said this before, we have a goal. We want to raise $300,000 before the end of this calendar year. That will enable us to continue to do what we're doing into next year and then some. We want to continue supporting Canadians and defending them and their rights in the legal world. We want to continue bringing you the informed Christian conservative Canadian news analysis. And we want to add to it with journalism and op-eds. We want to add more shows. We want to give you more content. We also want to continue to engage politically in advocacy work and training up Christians to run in every election in this country. There's much work to be done and we need your support. We need your help. So please consider supporting us at the Liberty Coalition Canada so that we can keep doing the good work we're doing into the unforeseeable future. Because in case you haven't noticed, this battle will not be over in a month. We are talking about a multi-generational culture war. And so we're going to have to be around for a while doing the work that we're doing, equipping and helping and informing Canadians. And we need your help to do that for the long haul. Until next time, dear listeners, Galatians 5-1. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty Dispatch, a united front to restore liberty and justice in Canada. Please subscribe to our podcast and Rumble channel, as well as visit our website at www.LibertyCoalitionCanada.com.